Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. You can find them at streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that's become integral to my research process. I have recently been onboarded to the AlphaSense product to test Stream out on that product. I can tell you that the search functionality is very, very good, and I look forward to the innovations that occur on the platform. Stream by Mosaic provides over 300 expert interviews per week. 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream, and each interview goes through three layers of compliance screening. Recently, someone said Stream is table stakes for good fundamental analysis, and I couldn't agree more. Please see streamrg.com where you can sign up for a 14-day trial to get a more robust understanding of the companies that you're researching. I will drop a link in the show notes also. This episode features Simeon Siegel. Simeon is a managing director and senior analyst at BMO Capital Markets. That's Bank of Montreal, for those that don't know. I met Simeon at the Liberty Dinner, and we hit it off. We discussed doing a podcast. He agreed. This is the result. I had a great time recording this one. I think the energy in it's great. And settle back and enjoy some retail therapy. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. So thrilled to be joined by Simeon Siegel today. And uh, we met at the Liberty Dinner before Liberty Investor Day, sat next to each other, had a nice evening. And uh, you explained a little bit of uh, your Peloton thesis. And Shane was excited to have me meet you. So that's how we met. How's how's life going, man? Interesting earnings season. Great to be here. I can tell you that sitting next to a random person uh, talking about Peloton, I did not plan for it to uh, to get aired. But um, but always always <laughs> fun where conversations go. And uh, listen, the beauty of earnings season is that they are never ending, and uh, they always keep you on your toes. Yeah. So uh, do you want to you want to explain? You may be the first sell side analyst that I've had. Um, oh, well, that's a win. I uh, listen. I, I think that we have it, it's it's a funny uh, it's a funny job, right? We are a special breed of human where we get to opine and and impact and not get our hands wet or feet dirty or whatever that phrase is supposed to be. So I fully get that. But on the other hand, it also gives us I, I would hopefully argue an opportunity to try and be intellectually honest the whole way through and the vicissitudes of the market we can actually take a little bit, maybe, right, the longest view because we can't be squeezed out or called. So it just depends which way you want to look at it, right? Not having risk on the table, I think, is generally viewed as a negative. But on the other hand, we're getting out very publicly and expressing our views. And I can tell you that there's there's definitely impact of, of being wrong. But what it allows you to do is take a really close view and say, do you believe, right? It's wh- whether it was Adam Smith or not, right? Because I think it's a falsely attributed quote. But this notion of staying solvent longer than the market, sell-side analyst in theory gets to. So hmm. if taken the right way, you get to actually try and take the truest perspective of fundamental intrinsic value. That's really interesting because the perception that I run in, I think, is that the sell-side is usually late to upgrade and downgrade and sort of a little bit more focused on quarters. So I haven't heard it put that way. I thought you were going to go with lazy when you went with la. So late, late actually is a nicer way of going. So let's go with late. <laughs> no, I don't. 
I'll tell you what, man, I, I think, um, so the way that I learned is I, I kind of studied Buffett and whatnot. And it, I think that there's a misnomer in my interpretation of what he was saying and perhaps what he was saying about the sell side or, or what people that study him say. And I have come to appreciate what you all do very, very much. I don't know that on average, I, I take the recommendation portion as seriously as I maybe would if I didn't know more. But I do think that as far as like following what's going on in the industry, I think people that don't respect the sell side don't have a good idea of what you all do. If that makes Listen, sense. I appreciate that. What I'm not going to try and do is, is argue like, listen, we, we all have different roles and I fully understand where the perception comes from. I also, to your point, listen, if, if, if I walk off of a call, whether it's with buy side or a corporate and the response is you provoked thought, or I haven't thought about that before. That's an interesting question. Whether we agree or not on the dynamic move of the stock, that's a win, right? Because that's in theory, what hopefully I'm doing, if I'm doing my job, is taking the fact that I don't have to worry about my risk and taking the fact that I don't theoretically have to worry about the same level of duration. All I have to worry about is what are the metrics telling me? Where's the puck going? And so being on that opposite side, hopefully what I'm doing is making you think about something you didn't otherwise think about. You take that to do the same recommendation from the stock perspective, that's your prerogative, right? Because you're getting paid the PL, I'm not. But it allows me effectively this freedom to really try and understand what do I believe the story of this company is telling me? And then obviously you have to figure out the sentiment and the direction, et cetera, but that's, that's a separate conversation. Yeah. That's interesting. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like you view your job as surfacing really important questions and then having, having discussions around those. And then, you know, if people disagree, that's fine. But at least if, like, let's say I'm a client of BMO. If I can call you and have a, a, a conversation that I otherwise would not have had because you raised an issue, that's your that's one of your real roles in the whole process. Is that fair? A hundred percent. Listen, I'll say two things because I think you just hit on some very interesting points. I'll, t- I'll tell you, I've had some of my worst days on the job where I've had a buy-rated stock up 20% and my phone didn't ring. I've had some of the best days of the job when I've had a buy rated stock down 20% and I didn't have a chance to go to the bathroom, right? Like hmm. at the end of the day, if I'm not, if, if, if my opinion doesn't matter, then it doesn't, there's no benefit, but what I'll, but the interesting thing is to your point, we just upgraded Under Armour recently and on that call, and it's the first time I've had a buy on Under Armour. Historically, I've had a sell on Under Armour and on that call throughout that day, every person I spoke to was effectively like, okay, these are some interesting points. And I didn't get much pushback. I'll tell you, that's, that's worse. I, I want pushback, right? I want mm. to know that it's contrarian. Now, what made me feel better was that at the end of the day, and I don't know when we're airing this, but this was, uh, this Probably happened two weeks. So this happened in the middle of January. And as hopefully as the listeners are not feeling, uh, January was tough for a lot of people, especially mid January. And so everyone kept saying the ideas make a lot of sense. I get it, but there's no way I'm putting something on right now. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't have the leash. I don't have the PNL. It already feels like it's October. So it was this interesting dynamic where from my seat, the other benefit that we haven't addressed is I get a sentiment perspective that if I'm willing to listen to, it actually can help 
create this value add that here's an idea that might be crowded sentimentally, but it's actually hmm. not crowded from an ownership perspective. And so what that means is if it was magically Jan 1 instead of, let's say, Jan 15, or magically everyone just started, right? There's no watermark. There's no, there's no wall to climb. That stock would have been up, in my opinion, because people want to own it. They just can't right now. So that's hmm. a totally different reason to own a stock. But it is really important, and it's an interesting perspective that you get if you listen to the conversations you're having as opposed to just speaking them. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a, a, a unique place to sit and a unique funnel to have. And I, I think what you're saying reminds me of something that I heard about somebody in another stock last year. The person was charged with researching disruptive industries was, I think, their charge. Found a stock, came to the, the PM, pitched it, and the, the, I mean, I, this is all hearsay, right? But the, what I heard is like, look, if this goes down 30%, like we can't lose and own this. We can lose and own something else that's more consensus, but like this has got too much hair on it. And it's kind of interesting how that happens. So, so that is part of my ethos, right? So what I get to hear, I just had this conversation with a recent, I'm not going to say which one, um, but a recent IPO that we took public that we all know how the basket of IPOs are doing. And what conversation I had with them was effectively, you need to internalize, right? This company to this management team is the entire world. I said, but you need to internalize right now is there's no one sitting at a fund, long only your hedge, that's going to lose their job by missing your stock go up 10x right now. Whereas with everything going on, with all the potential flags, looking at the performance, looking at the et cetera, for someone to actually stick their neck out, that's a big conversation. And so what's really interesting that I, that I kind of overlay into my mosaic is the person sitting at that, whether it's an analyst or a PM, whether it's an analyst to a PM or a PM to an investor, when they make this pitch, are they going out on a list? Like, are, are they going to get fired if they're wrong? Mm -hmm. Or is it easier just to ignore? And it's a warped way of thinking about investment. But in my conversations, that's the subtle undertone that I hear all the time. This is not in my benchmark. It's not going to matter. I don't need to be a hero. Obviously, the hero calls when you get them right are the really compelling ones. Those are the ones you retire on. But the reality is not everyone's a hero. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So when I was when I was at uh, I was at BMO Harris and there was a yeah, that's where I was in the food group there. Nice. Uh, for a while. And then I went to a uh, mid corporate, but or not mid corporate, it was commercial middle market. But the uh, there was such a wall between you guys and us, like we could not talk at all. But I, I always respected. It was Joel. It was uh, he covered commo uh, commodities yes. like potash and uh, phosphate. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that guy was always on the road. He was busting his ass all the time. You guys don't sleep. Doesn't feel like at least. So the beauty is, so I cover, I, I call it discretionary. I started off covering Abercrombie and Fitch and kind of pivoted to just focusing on consumer discretionary and what makes something no longer a commodity. I, I don't track unit velocity. I'm, I don't know anything about Walmart, but if you tell me I've got a pair of pants and it becomes a pair of Lululemon leggings, or I've got an oven and it becomes a Traeger wood pellet grill, or I've got a bike and it becomes a Peloton, that's what gets me going. This idea of understanding pricing power, this idea of understanding price elasticity of demand, 
internalizing that there's psychology behind what a consumer buys and pays, but there's also a ton of psychology driven by the management team because no company is managed by an algorithm. They're managed by people. So when I think about it from that perspective, that's powerful. That's a lot of fun. What I will say, though, is it's a lot healthier for me to have embraced this fitness area where I spend half of my time on the Peloton or the Tonal or the Hydro or wearing my Whoop. I just took off the or than just like being on the food side or, or the other things that we have to get very comfortable with. So I might not sleep, but the whoop tells me about it every day. And it's <laughs> I got my aura on, man. I like this stuff. Yeah. 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 Mine's, mine's charging. Do you have an eight sleep? No. You're, you're I'm going to send you this. And then eight sleep needs to sponsor this podcast. Damn it. It changed my life, man. It's Let's incredible. It. All right. So it's, um, the best way I know how to describe it is it's it's a thin water layer that goes over your bed. Some people know of the chili pad. Okay. I think the difference between the eight sleep and the chili pad is that you can have different sides of the bed be different temperatures. So I did a podcast a while back with this woman, Louisa Nicola, and she was telling me that like I needed to prioritize sleep. And I, I knew it was true, but... I didn't know how to do it. And she recommended to get an aura, get an eight sleep and change some of my habits. So I did it all at the same time. So I can't, I can't say this is causal, but what I used to do is I used to turn the temperature in my room way down, but then I'd get my blankets on. Right. And then I'd like sweat in the middle of the night. This cools me from the bottom Love it, and it like changes temperature through the night. And then, so I like to wake up, I like to go to bed a little bit cold, I like to sleep cold, and then I like to wake up warm. And it'll change when I want it to, and then it vibrates to wake me up. So like, it doesn't wake my wife up when the alarm goes off, because it's just like vibrating, and I can get out of bed, and then it's sick. So, so this sounds awesome, and my increasing unifying theory of everything tech is Retail was easy. You shopped in a store. Life was good. Tech came along. It demolished the business. It destroyed barriers to entry, which means it massively enacted barriers to succeed and life became even harder. What's happened in the last five years where people have realized that you can use tech to help you. And so I think this kind of increasing pivot, any company that really has the unlock is a company that takes tech to demystify, de-elitify, basically take something that people can't do or don't know how to do, and they're embarrassed to try, and it lets you learn in the comfort of your own house and you make mistakes Hmm. in your attic. And so Peloton was a great example of that, where people look and see spin classes. If you've never done it, you're not going to go into one because they're intimidating, right? I I think Traeger is a really good example. Also, I've mentioned them the same idea where, listen, I've wanted to know how to grill forever. I've flipped burgers forever, and they generally don't taste all that great. But all of a sudden now, here comes a company that tells me, press this button, do this, and you're going to be a hero. And I actually have, uh, I think I'm on hour 20 right now of a smoke, of a brisket smoke happening. Huh. Uh, like my kids think. So, so this idea of if you can take this tech and you can say, listen, people want to know how to sleep, but they don't even know what they're doing wrong. Yeah. The tech can educate you, but it can do it without having to ask someone. That's powerful. Yeah. I, um, I'll tell you what's wild is I, I put the aura on and um, my buddy Dan mcmurtry was like you're gonna see what one drink does to you at night like when you sleep even one drink he's like i I don't know if i'm outing his theory sorry dan if i am but like he's (laughs) like you're better to just like go get hammered one night and then be totally sober six nights 
then like, you know, this is not medical advice, folks, but like, you know, like it, it is wild <laughs> to see even one drink, my heart rate through the night spikes like 10, 12 beats. So the problem, like you're talking about being causal, it's right. Like, is this, is this prescriptive or analytical, but the problems when you wake up and you feel great and it was like, that was a great night's sleep. And then like you open it up and hit aura and hit whoop and like, look at your Apple watch and they tell you that you're you have <laughs> nothing. And you're like all of a sudden exhausted. And you're like, what just happened? <laughs> What just like <laughs> that does happen to me, you, you know, you and it impacts. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because oral be like, your sleep score is garbage. And I'm like, that was a great <laughs> night of sleep. What are you talking about? <laughs> so you had no REM sleep. I had a lot of dreams. That's no right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I do think that they need to get a little bit better. Like it seems like when you flip over, they associate that with waking up. But whatever. I mean, it's not perfect. It's a good start. And you yeah. know what? For people that are willing to give that data, like there's just there's no end, whether it's these guys, whether it's the new massage company, like there's just a lot of really interesting things. And I think that what Connected Fitness has done is it's opened up, right? As as we keep hearing about people willing to give less and less in terms of data for privacy purposes, Connected Fitness is telling you this is like a self-selecting group that's saying, take all the data you want if you give it back to me. And if you tell me something about myself. And so it's this really interesting dynamic where we're only at the beginning of letting someone give you a diagnostic of yourself. Yeah. You know what I think is so interesting about this privacy debate and sort of what's going on right now and i'm sure it's trickling into your coverage universe with uh with advertising returns maybe not if you're dealing with bigger but i I just got off a call with somebody that manages small brand spend and like the this apple change has just completely thrown off what they're able to do you're hitting on something so important that's also so contrarian and i don't know if you even appreciate this because but the People on Twitter just, don't like what I'm saying right now. <laughs> but but the distinction you just made is something, it's like a new crusade of mine that people haven't been talking about yet. Small versus big is really important. I was just in a conversation with someone that was telling me he was in a group of, lunch with the C, a bunch of CMOs, right? So like a group of marketers and they're all complaining about iOS and they're all complaining that they can't reach their customer anymore. And so my response to him was just out of curiosity, how big are the brands? And it's small to mid, no billion dollars, stuff like that, right? Was it, you know, who's not complaining about not getting access? Huge. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Anyone big. And so this idea, and we actually wrote, and you and I haven't spoken about this yet, but you're going to, you're going to love it. Some people love it. Some people absolutely hate it. We wrote a report, a two week report. Like you go back to this idea of like, why I love this job is because I actually get to take time and, and pull strings. So we wrote a two week report that turned into a six month report. The title is DTC is not all it's cracked up to be. Oh, dude, send this to me, please. Uh, come, come in your way. And yeah. so the premise, like the conclusion, the cliff note was as big brands pivoted direct, they didn't see an increase in revs. They didn't see the increase in gross margin. They did not see the increase in EBIT rate, and they did not see the increase in EBIT dollars. And all four of those are massively contrarian and stark contrast to the world. But like the main thing vis-a-vis, and we can go into it, but the main thing vis-a-vis your point here is there's this perception that there's a middleman, whether it's a department store or someone else, doesn't matter. There's a middleman. Cut out the middleman, you make more money. Factually incorrect. Mathematically incorrect. That's number one. But number two, every brand that's so convinced they want to go direct for all this great data, if the data doesn't translate into higher revenues or higher profits, why is it worthwhile? And if the data that you're saying you get, like you're, you're just beautifully close to your customer, you have all this direct data, and that's the problem now with Apple, why don't the wholesalers have a problem with that? They're selling so much more. 
It's this amazing thing going on. And I love that you brought up big and small because people don't make that distinction, but it's critical. What do you, I mean, what were some of the findings of the, of the report that you wrote? So, so those four things were the main things. And so what I'll tell you is that there is now in my world, this collective push, whether you're the largest company in the world or the, or digitally native, tiny company, go direct, don't go, don't, don't build a company the way people used to, whether it's stores or whether it's wholesale. And when I say DTC, I mean, DTC versus wholesale, not e-com versus stores, just to be clear. Yeah. So these big brands, somewhat by definition, the ones that are talking about pivoting away from direct or because they are pivoting away from wholesale or because they already became huge, profitable brands via wholesale. So what we found is that you have to pick the right partner, but don't issue wholesale simply because it's perceived to be an added cost. Hmm. And so this is like this amazing thing when you know, like you think about digitally natives, everyone wants to be vertically integrated, right? That's, that's the, the perception. Every brand, every small digitally native emerging, really successful brand outsources their marketing agency. Why are people that are maniacally against, they're maniacally opposed letting someone distribute their product, and yet they're so comfortable letting someone actually create the storytelling behind their product? Hmm. The point is you vet a partner, vet yeah. both sides. So that was one. And it was, it was this really interesting. And my, my kind of, as I, as I talk to boards on either side of the spectrum, large, big, and small, it's that idea. It's recognized wholesale is actually a very inexpensive sales force. And if you do it at wholesale and stores, you actually get a sales floor. So yeah. You get to do this in real life. And on the small side, there's certain companies that totally get it. You get a company like Viore, which is this incredibly exciting, or, or it's been uh, hailed as one of the hot new brands. And they embrace selectively wholesale, as do a lot of others. So it's so like, that's this idea. I think I would say like this, this perception, this pitch of just go direct, I think is misplaced. And we yeah. saw that in the numbers, and that's what's interesting. And like, as you and I become closer, you'll see I can be incredibly opinionated, which means I can be incredibly wrong. The beauty of this report, it's almost entirely empirical. It's almost hmm. entirely data-driven. That's, that's really interesting. So, I mean, like, w- one of the things that I think, you know, people that have an aversion to the sell side may not understand is the power of being able to say, I'm putting together this research report. And, you know, our bank has a relationship with you all. And these are the people that I've talked to. Can we come sit down and have a conversation and how give and take the conversation is? I I don't know that a lot of retail understands that the sell side does that. So I'll say my best reports, my best research reports are, first of all, exactly that. They're research. They're not pre-written. I don't know the conclusion. I have a hypothesis. We pull strings and they take a lot longer because we're learning things. This was literally a two-week report that became a six-month project. So that's number one. But number two, the best research reports generally trigger from if I'm talking to people and I keep hearing the same either question or assumption, right? The best. If everyone keeps telling me, obviously, if I hear the word obviously, my, my antennas go up. Hmm. So wholesale is obviously worse. Why? Because if I'm creating sneakers or sweaters and, I, and it's the same cog, right? The same cost to produce and I sell it to Kohl's and I have to take a cut, right? Because they're going to get a piece of it and I'm going to get a piece of it. Or if I sell it on my own .com, obviously I'm going to make more money, right? Hmm. And rewinding 10 years, if I sell something via e-com, because this was really interesting. We wrote the same report effectively 10 years ago about e-commerce, 10, 15 years ago, where everyone thought e-com was going to be the salvation, right? Why? Because obviously there's no rent. And obviously there's no store labor, so it must be better. And Mm. yet circle through and you realize that maybe obviously there's no rent and labor, but there's obviously pick, pack, ship, fulfill, return, reverse (laughs) logistics. It's all variable intensive (laughs) unit economics. Yeah. So we found out e-com was this dilutive business. 
I think it's the same thing happening right now. So to your, it's, it's, I love like every, if I hear the word, obviously, if I hear the same claim just said really quickly, that's a signal for me to dig in and actually take some huh. time and try and see if it's real or not. Huh? I love that. I, I interviewed a guy named Adam Robinson. And one of the things that Adam said to me, he was on Tim Ferriss's podcast, like four years ago or something. And he said, there's big money to be made in things that are blatantly obvious and things that make no sense. So if you look at something and you're like, oh, that's clearly obvious, like dig in a little bit deeper. And if you look at something like Tesla at at a billion makes no sense to me, it's probably something I should dedicate time to. I mean, either it makes sense and I don't get it, or it doesn't make sense. And maybe you can make money on the short side. I don't know which way, but like, totally, it makes, you know, spend time. I'm not smart enough to do biotech, right? I don't know how any of that stuff works. But to me, the beauty of consumer is that we're all consumers, which means we forget that we're supposed to be analysts. So it's so easy to transpose your own anecdotal onto what's supposed to be a number conversation. And listen, I'll tell you, like, this is, if you and I are starting a company right now and we're about to give away the secret, the only thing we should do is focus on selling a product that Wall Street's going to buy. Because if we sell it to Wall Street, we're all egomaniacal enough to believe the tan is through the roof. <laughs> so it's like, it's this beautiful thing of thinking, well, I use it, so everyone will too. <laughs> yeah, interesting. That's funny. So I, I, I have two, two paths in my head that I want to go with this, and I'll let you choose. One, do you want to get into Peloton? Or two, do you want to talk about why uh, you're pivoting on Under Armour now? Because this is an intriguing idea to me. So we should do both because they're the same trade. Let's start with Peloton, if it's okay, because I thought that you were really early on the concept of COVID might actually be the worst thing that's happened to this company. And now I'm starting to hear people say that. And you've been saying that for a long time. So I'd be interested to hear how you pieced that together and when like the light bulb moment went off where you were like, holy shit, this is actually not a great event. It's potentially a bad event. So to start the conversation, I'm a Peloton user, like big fan of the product. I've had it for multi-years. I also have a tonal. I also use the hydro. Like I, I've got a lot, of, a lot of these products increasingly, and that's part of the problem. But what was so interesting to me was this notion of rhetoric versus reality. And there was a, it was a quarter. So we started watching this demand surge. And the question was always going to be, was it an expansion of TAM or was it a pull forward of TAM? You couldn't know until one quarter. There was this really interesting quarter where the company gives a on their balance sheet a line item that's a proxy for backlog. It's called customer deposits and deferred revenues. So effectively, dollars given for a service that hasn't, that hasn't been provided to, to oversimplify. There's obviously more nuance there. So what had been happening through the pandemic was everyone kept looking at that number and dividing it by revenues. They kept saying, if my backlog is only X percent of my revenues, it's already covered, right? Like the guidance is, is in the bag because I already have it. Booked. I just haven't been able to deliver anything. So I had that in my model. But what we also did was we divided it by inventory. Because from my perspective, the question is, if it's a pull forward or not, how is the company going to react if things slow down? And literally the quarter where that number dipped below 100%, literally the quarter where the backlog proxy was less than the inventory already on hand was the first quarter the company started guiding down. Huh. So what does that mean? The first quarter where you had to forecast a business, the first quarter where the inventory wasn't already accounted for, 
was the first quarter where the business started downticking. Uh-huh. That's where we got vocal. All that right. If, if I can just, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm yeah. understanding what you're saying. So when deferred revenue is increasing, the market is looking at a business that is working capital positive, right? Oh, we're, we're bringing in working capital as we're growing. This is amazing. TAM is expanding. You still have the supply chain crunch. So the bikes are not being delivered kind of makes some extrapolation extrapolation look artificially better than it may otherwise be at the time that the business catches up to the forecasting you see deferred revenue come in and now inventory is oversized outsized versus where true demand actually is and then you're like aha and that's the quarter where they started guiding down but only the beginning what happened after that what increasingly happened and that was kind of again this this moment was inventory ballooned to that point but now they had bought three, effectively bought or spent massive capital investment on three aspects of increasing manufacturing. They bought Tonic, which was their manufacturing plant or facility. They bought Precore, which was a commercial seller of product. And then they created or began breaking ground on a $400 million Peloton output park in Ohio. So now you had this huge fixed cost spend, which is interesting. We'll get there. Actually reminded me a lot of an Under Armour sell that we had years ago where it's a similar idea of a company that's just triggering massive growth for a consumer that can understand it. Again, this is not biotech. This is products that you and I use, where the company drinks effectively their own Kool-Aid, sees the demand, expects it's going to go forever, changes the entire capital structure of the business. By the way, Peloton raised a boatload of money through a convert about a year ago at a 0% coupon. 0%. Then a year later, they had to raise capital at $46. Now it's even lower. So this looking at like the deterioration of the financials, they were in this amazing spot. Use that to completely rechange the fixed cost structure of their business. And then all of a sudden didn't see the demand falter. Now, I think another point just to throw in is that is important is because like I, I obviously I try, listen, I try to be intellectually honest. I try to look back and, and appreciate what are the learnings and, and where do we get things wrong? When I think about these, it's like on the one hand, I watched management. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of watch how I spend. Don't listen to what I say. We, we have a quarterly report assessing debt. Before COVID, we had a framework to determine fixed cost versus variable cost. Because if you're a growth company and you're pivoting to variable, chances are you don't buy your own growth and vice versa. But so when looking here, you have a corporate that's spending. Same thing with Under Armour. Back in the day, by all accounts, I should have been feeling like, you know what? They drink. They, they believe it. The problem was at the same time, management was selling stock. And the same thing happened. Hmm. So if you're both spending corporate dollars while, so, while selling while stock, diversifying your own personal and, and not an insignificant amount, I'm all for diversifying, I'm all for liquidity. You just have to ask that question. So yeah. that, was, that combination for us was where it started feeling like if not for COVID, you and I right now would be talking about this amazing, small to mid, beautifully growing business called Peloton. That business would be in a drastically different fixed cost structure. They'd have a whole bunch of 3PLs. They would outsource a lot of what they do, but they'd have this amazing growing demand. And most importantly, their financials would be in great shape. But more than that, they spotlighted through this massive inflection. They spotlighted the fact that Connected Fitness was a great place to be, which helped their competitors raise a lot of money last year. Huh. So, all right, let me, uh, let me dumb this down a little bit. If if they don't buy pre-core and they don't buy these facilities and they're not solving a temporary supply chain issue, 
there's a decent probability that their business is more variable in nature. Is that fair? Because it's more outsourced and that gives you more flexibility. And what they did is they added a ton of fixed cost at exactly the wrong time. Correct. I listen, I've been very vocal. I've had a vocal sell on this. I've never called this GoPro. I've never called this BlackBerry. To me, this is a great product or it's a great community. It tells a story. People absolutely, the engagement is, is among the best in many categories. Had they retained that and had they flexed R&D up and down, had they flexed sales and marketing expense up and down, and this was maintained as a business that was tracking its growth, had they left dollars on the table, there'd be a lot more dollars in the future. The problem Mm. was they completely pivoted. They had to go as vertical as possible. And all of a sudden, there were liquidity concerns. That's why they raised a billion dollars two weeks after saying they weren't going to. Hmm. I like how you said that. If they had left dollars on the table, there would be more dollars in the future. Part of the uh, bit of that's very poetic. A little bit poetic. Yeah. No, that is poetic. (laughs) It's 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 an interesting issue, and and I. I may even be connecting some of the parallels to Under Armour. I've said for a long time, the thing that makes me nervous about Peloton is that it's Under Armour. And why I said that was back in the day when Under Armour had like the true Under Armour stuff and they first started to sponsor like Auburn football. They were dope. Like it was functional athletic equipment that was outflanking Nike. And then they tried to be everything to everyone. And they became like kind of a crappy brand, at least perceptually. And maybe you're not allowed to say that. I'm saying it. It's just my opinion. We call it ubiquitous. You you can choose whatever descriptor you want. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. They tried to be everywhere, right? And like you go into Ross and you'd see like Under Armour on sales racks. And it really, it, it decreased what the brand was, I think, in the consumer's mind. And I have toyed with owning Peloton in the past. Yeah. On the whole way down, I've toyed with it. And uh, the thing that has kept me out is that thought. And also, I was talking to my wife and we were talking about the, the bike plus and the bike and how they're marketing it. And there's a commercial that is like the bike and then there's a slash through the price and then another and a lower price. And it's like that just that just hum discounting to me. And I was like, I just don't think this should be a discount brand, even if they think that they can roll out a bike plus like the presentation really upset me. So if DTC is not all it's cracked up to be, was my 20 was my team's 2021 report. Did COVID save retail was the 2020 report. So early in the pandemic, my team, to their credit, I'm very appreciative, did phenomenal price elasticity of demand work. Similar idea, two week report that turned into I don't even know how long. And we upgraded L Brands, which owned hmm. Victoria at the time owned Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works, and we upgraded Under Armour from a cell. First time I did not have a cell on it in a in years, and that was early on pandemic. I don't know March, April. So I, I don't know when it was. The premise was people believe retail is overstored. What we found: any retailer in history closing a mass store, like triggering a mass store closure program. Really did not see the increase in EBIT rate, obviously not EBIT dollars, but didn't even see the rate. It just didn't happen. By shrinking stores, you became a smaller business. Full stop. What we found was that instead of closing stores, companies should commit to raising price. And so we ran this very elaborate elasticity of demand model that effectively showed that there were certain companies, Victoria's Secret and Under Armour were two of them, that were literally under earning because they were overselling and could give up 
if they committed to a 25% price hike, which sounds like a lot in percentages, but think about what that means on a $20 shirt. If they committed to a $25 price hike, 25%. You said dollar. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, 25%. You landed roughly $25. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. If they raise prices 25%, they could give up 40% of their units or zero and still be EBIT dollar accretive. Yeah. Flip that around, not EBIT rate. They would make more money if they sold 40, almost half of the units they sold. And so what that said to me was the problem with North America is not that it's overstored, it's that it's over discounted. And people, huh. and this is where you get into the problem of like, you go back to the sell side. It's like, you and I are both guilty of forcing companies to grow for growth's sake. And what COVID allowed companies to do was for the very unique time, actually take this forced sales reset and figure out which customers were dilutive, which sales were not worth having. Walk away from those and you can sell less, charge more, make more money. And huh. Victoria's Secret did that beautifully. Really? For the next, for the next year. So our math, we did, we did a big deep dive on the Victoria's Secret margins. My math was gross margins were in the mid-20s. You can't make money if your gross margins in the mid-20s. But everyone was yelling that Victoria's Secret was worthless. Why? Yeah. They were saying it was dead. You can't be a dead brand if you sell $5 billion. So what happened? They, got, they, they were agreed to sell Victoria's Secret. LB agreed to spin off Victoria's Secret. Sycamore agreed, walked away. And when they walked away... We jumped in, we upgraded that night because the premise was Victoria's Secret can do more with less. And what you saw was a massive gross margin expansion as the sales imploded, EBIT dollars went up. And I don't remember, I mean, you can fact check this for me, but LB was one of, if not the best S&P stock that year. And so it's this idea, exactly what you're saying of, you can do a lot more with less if you focus on elevating your brand. And it's a hard thing to do in a public market, in a public setting, but COVID allowed you to do it. It's very relevant for your Under Armour conversation, and it's also probably going to be relevant for the Peloton conversation. Victoria's Secret is interesting because I did a little bit of on-the-ground research, and I looked around, and I was like, there are so many bras here. And like what used to be a sexy brand just looked like a lot of cloth smattered throughout the stores. And this is like 2018, 2019, because I, you know, I got intrigued by the you know, multiple or whatever. And I was like, nah, it's too tough. And then I just kind of, once I did that, I put it away. I, I wouldn't have been open to the idea, but that's, it's a very interesting concept where it's like COVID forced them to be able to say, okay, well, what are we really good at? What is our customer really want to pay for? And how can we lean into that? And by the way, to your point of like, you wouldn't have been interested. I, I was wrong for, I was negative for a while. I mean, on, on that brand, like for the same, for the same reasons. So it was this idea, like this flipped it. I mean, again, I flipped Under Armour from a sell to a neutral and, and we went on LB to a buy because this change. And so it's this idea. We actually did a quadrant of we, this was very, very oversimplified. We just plotted revenues against margin rate with the idea being if you're a huge tech company and you're losing money, that's allowed, right? There's reasons for that. If you're, a, if you're selling cloth, exactly your, your words, if you're selling cloth and you're selling $5 billion of it, you're not a dead brand. You might be very sick, but you're not dead. And like, that's what I try to remind people. And it's funny because it goes back to your point about big versus little. Revenues are the external measure of customer buy-in, full stop. Gross margin is a measure of brand perception, but revenues tell you how many people want your things. And you cannot say that a brand selling $5 billion is something that people don't want. Hmm. So that's this idea. You can tweak that. 
and then re-elevate your brand, then that's powerful. I think Under Armour will emerge and is emerging from the pandemic stronger than when they started because they were able to take all those logos that were slapped on anywhere you possibly could find and get rid of them. Under Armour went and reevaluated half the reasons that I had to sell on it. They reevaluated. They canceled really expensive college endorsement projects. They stopped a big, huge rollout of the Fifth Avenue store, right? Like they very surgically looked at pieces of this business that were very much targeted to growth for growth's sake. And instead hmm. said, how do we a better, how do we be a better brand? Not a bigger brand. That's interesting. The Fifth Ave store, I think could, I mean, I, I don't know this like you do. So if I say something stupid, please tell me. But I would think the Fifth Ave store could actually work better if the brand were reined in, right? Like it could elevate the brand presence in a smaller brand, but I don't think it would work when the logo is smattered everywhere, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, what you're saying makes total sense. The question is, is it, do you still, does it matter, right? Should I, will, yeah. will Under Armour ever be luxury? No. So is it, can you justify whatever the 20 to $40 million price tag is? That's a lot harder. And if yeah. you think about it, here's, here's the wild part about Under Armour. They're still selling a crazy amount of units, right? Like to, to synthesize your descriptor earlier, Under Armour became the Gap hoodie in Disney World, as opposed yeah. to being the thing that makes you jump higher. So as they can reevaluate where they want to be, that's this notion of, listen, we're all told to, to try and really think carefully about what we want to be when we grow up. Same thing for brands. And if you stretch too far, we've done a lot of work. This is actually something that really underpins everything we do. We've done a lot of work historically over the years over where brands peak. And there's no reason to think that brands should have a common ceiling, but they do. Hmm. And what we found is that DTC-only brands, again, stores and e-com, not, not e-com, DTC-only brands generally peak in North America at $3 billion. Hmm. Wholesale, if you add, if you, if you outsource your sales force, you get five to six, right? Somewhere that's it. But what happens, going back to the idea that we talked about, Companies are run by people, not by algorithms. Humans aren't hot-wired to acknowledge we've peaked. The world would be a very different place if it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is as good as it's getting, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but people stretch. And so what you watch is you watch these companies go above that ceiling, but almost without exception, collapse back. And the question is, do you internalize that you've gone beyond your TAM? And then you can salvage margin. You can give up the, you can proactively give up the revenues. Or do you fight it? And then you lose the revenues and the margin. And that's what we see over and over again. And Under Armour was that story, and now they've internalized it. And so for the first time in, in forever, not that, not that my opinion counts for much, but for the first time in forever, I felt compelled to put a buy on this on the recent market drop. Hmm. So as this, I didn't want to have a sell on it because I felt like COVID was able to flip that and that they did. Was I, I, I hadn't jumped full force to, to actually wanting to own it. But now I look at this and I think they are emerging healthier. And I think that we're on a different side of this spectrum. And again, using this babies in bathwater in the recent market sell-off to find where what are going to be the positive brands. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you think that COVID, uh, I mean, I, I think COVID was the catalyst. Do you think that um, could Armour have pivoted, Under Armour have pivoted if COVID didn't exist and like they were the only brand pulling back? Or did it take like almost an industry-wide reset to be able to let everybody kind of see what's rational? It is such a good question. So in this, did COVID save retail report? I, I believe no. I believe COVID saved retail. I don't hmm. believe brands saved themselves. I think that what we, so what we did in that report, we actually compared the current shrink to grow and LB, so Victoria's Secret and Under Armour were our two loudest versions of that with the shrink to grow five years prior where Ralph, Coach, Coors, like there was this group 
that tried to do it then, and the market did not reward them for it. And so this idea, and by the way, Victoria's Secret has tried it in the past. The problem is, it's one thing, it's very hard, I'm not going to belittle, it's very hard to get out in front of people like you and me and say, by the way, expect revenues to be down 25% for the next year. That's very hard. But what's even harder is doing it four times a year at least and actually seeing the units collapse. Because the beauty is like, as I was pitching Victoria's Secret to people and as I was pitching and and then kind of talking through the Under Armour conversation, I had a 45 minute conversations with, with close friends and they'd say, okay, I get it. I really like it. But like, is like, isn't Victoria's Secret going to be giving up share? It's like, yes, that's exactly the point. You want hmm. them to give up share. It just, it doesn't compute, right? It's this cognitive dissonance of being willing to own something that's shrinking, even if the EBIT dollars are exploding up. And yeah. so this idea, you can't do that in a normal environment when other companies are growing, yes. but if COVID resets you. What happens is, listen, if, a, if an enormous company, as their revenues go to zero and their expenses become optional, because that's what happened. People stopped paying rent. They stopped buying inventory. Unfortunately, they, they furloughed employees. There were no rent, no revenues, no expenses. What is that? It's a startup, startup pivot. So instead of shrinking from 19, the conversation became growing from 20. And it was this magical moment hmm. for those who took it. And I think that's why COVID saved retail. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense because it really, really sucks to go and tell the street like we're shrinking, other people are growing, like, your stock is inevitably going to be hammered. Right. But once everything's in the toilet anyway, right, like nobody's stocks were, especially in retail, everything was depressed. You can like really take a fresh set of eyes at the problem. And again, as absurd as it is, you're not actually shrinking. You're growing yeah. from the 2020 base. Yeah. And that's semantics. But it matters. That is that is really interesting. You see this sometimes, I think, when companies have like a high margin segment under the hood that's cannibalizing some of their current business and people hate it because the revenue growth isn't there. But and it's like, yeah, but your margins are like growing like a weed uh, and it takes a while to see it. Now, the interesting thing here, though, is. We wrote, did COVID save retail? The reality is you had COVID allowed for the opportunity to be saved. You still had to take it. And yeah. so I think what we're dealing with right now, like what's so interesting to me right now, and this goes back to sell side versus buy size, in theory, if I'm doing my job right, I have the luxury of putting this all up on a whiteboard instead of actually putting it on a PL on a on a Bloomberg. And what that allows me to do is say, I know what the conversation is going to be in six months from now, right? Everyone's complaining right now about inflation. Everyone's complaining right now about lapping stimulus, about lapping pent-up demand because vaccines were like, the only thing we did not know six months to a year ago was Omicron. We literally knew we were going to lap stimulus because it happened last year. We literally knew we were going to lap pent-up demand. It happened last year. And I've been shocked. This, This inflation and supply chain conversation is incredibly interesting and confusing because supply chain and inflation, and we've been vocal about this are literally the same thing as higher prices and tight inventory, right? Inflation is higher prices, which you and I have been talking about as a good thing. And supply chain constraint is tight inventory. That's why people wanted to own retail at the end of 2020 through mid-2021. When the government started saying it, when we started turning it into a macro factor as opposed to a micro beneficiary, it became scary. So this interesting dynamic is we knew last year that in 1H2021 was going to be hard. What do we know? We also know that 2H2022 
is going to be easier than two than one H twenty twenty two. We know the same way that we we should have known that everyone was going to be scared right now. I can tell you, people are going to be excited five months from now. And again, hmm. barring whatever. Why do you think? Simply because we're going to be on the other side of the hockey stick. Yeah. So, so my point is, barring externalities, I cannot tell you if something, God forbid, negative happens. Yeah. But barring that, you knew that people were going to be scared right now. And by the same token, once we get through that, right, this is going to be a very hockey stick looking year. Three, four months from now, once we've lapped stimulus, pent up demand, et cetera, then we flip back to starting to lap the other side and people start getting more excited. And that's when you get to chase these winners and losers. That's hmm. when the divergence happens. Interesting. I, I have begun to appreciate, and perhaps it's a naive thing to uh, admit, but I've begun to appreciate how much rate of change drives short-term movements. Is that, so would I be right if I connect an earlier part of the conversation to this part of the conversation in saying that like you might argue that your role is more dispassionate than somebody that's driving a PL right now and you're you're able to take a longer view would that be it would be your sort of like general framework of where you're able to see things a little bit clearer than somebody that's like terrified of paying the bills next month well so what you we even the way you asked it is really fascinating so i would argue that both of our jobs are supposed to be dispassionate but the nature of what i do maybe allow if i'm approaching in the right way allows me to be more dispassionate, right? Like the best investors yeah. don't get emotional about their positions. But at the end of the day, we all are human. I, I've been, listen, I, I've been asked to like, the Peloton call was not easy as the stock was ripping in my face, right? I didn't, I didn't top tick this. I didn't, I didn't downgrade it at the top. Like the- Yeah, so what was that like? So, well, so, so I've been asked, and then, and then I've been asked on the flip side, how great do you feel right now? And what I want to be clear is, I don't root, for, I'm not root, and I mean this, I, I'm not rooting for anyone to fail. Right? These are real people. These are real jobs. What I view my job is, I'm supposed to look for deviations. I'm supposed to, humans are natural storytellers. We don't tell facts, we sell stories. Numbers, assuming they're not fraudulent, tell facts. So I generally view my job as to synthesize the story that's coming, try to strip it down and align it with the numbers to entail, and, then, and then recreate the story, right? And does it align or does it not? When people give guidance, there is always going to be an explanation for guidance one question deep, but can they answer two? If the logic falls apart after the second question, the guidance is conservative or, or not, right? Like you can hear that. So mm. what I try to think about my job is at, a, at the highest level, does the, do the numbers align with the story? Does the rhetoric align with the reality? And if not, then what's going to be the timing? Like what a big learning for me on Peloton, and I, again, I learn this every time, so I'm not I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid here too, is you're never going to be get, you're never going to get paid or not never on a probability weighted basis. You're not going to get paid to be the hero calling an inflection on a growth stock. Whereas what you will always get paid to do, in my opinion, and again, always is a stupid comment to make. So let's say what you'll more likely get paid to do is wait for that crack and then make sure you don't buy the dip, right? When everyone said, tries to buy that dip, if the KPIs are arguing against the story, that's where it gets interesting. And we've seen that. Listen, Victoria's Secret went to 100 bucks before it went this way. Fossil was an $8 billion company before it was an $800 million company. Like when growth stocks, and this is in my world, so I, I'm, not, I'm not extrapolating this to tech. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But when, when consumer-focused brand growth stocks, et cetera, when they break, 
takes a long time for people to internalize they break. And so what I will say to this is hmm. a lot of people, Peloton went to whatever it was above 160. I had a lot of people on the way down at 110 when it was so clear that there were cracks. When we're talking about that customer deposits line was like already in the rear view mirror telling me, isn't this where I should buy the dip? Like, and I kept saying, no, no, listen, you look for the cracks. Like, okay, so when are the cracks going to be here? It's like, they're, they're here, right? The stock's hmm. down a lot. Like, this is exactly that point. So I can be early because I recognize that I don't get squeezed out. But on a probability-weighted basis, like to get paid, you don't have to be the hero. You can make a lot of money if you have a strong thesis and, and actually just stick true to the KPIs. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, I, I like how you said that it takes people a while to internalize that it's cracked. And I, I wonder if, um, I wonder if there, I wonder what the reason is. I, I would, I would assume the answer is brands that have stocks that go up in the way that growth stocks tend to go up and have financials to support it tend to have some buzz and then everybody gets rich owning them. And well, everyone that owns them gets rich. So it's kind of hard to tell you that, you know, my baby is no longer beautiful or something like that. Right. I just, I just learned this new term called Jomo, which is the joy of missing out, which I absolutely (laughs) love, like love. Well, that, that did not exist until 20, what, September of 2021. No one had Jomo. Isn't that great? Like, isn't that that perfect? So we naturally have FOMO. So if you weren't part of a run and it comes down, you've created, like we know all the heuristics, right? We know the psychology, we know behavioral, fine. like if we were all robots, people wouldn't buy the dip. I yeah, that's true. But it, feel, it feels like it's a good, it's like a, a good framework. It's, you see it, you anchor yourself to a position. Listen, here's a really fascinating thing. It doesn't matter because it's all nuanced and it doesn't actually mean anything. But as soon as Peloton dipped below the IPO price, everyone's like, oh my God, Peloton dipped below the IPO price. You know what no one did? Looked at the share count. Yeah. The company has raised a billion dollars of incremental shares. They've been paying out share-based comp. Like It actually wasn't below the market cap. Yeah. But we stick to the... So the anchoring, and this is a conversation I'm having now recurringly, where it's this idea of, okay, well, shouldn't Apple or insert whoever big tech name or athletic name buy them? And they go by a stock price. And I was like, this is a very good conversation to have, and we should have it. But you need to internalize it based on a market cap or an enterprise value don't look at it on the stock price because for whatever reason, the aggregators aren't using the diluted share count, right? Like if a company's going to buy them, we need to know what they're going to have to buy them for. And so there's, there's been this like piece here where people create these psychological anchors. And we, we know this, this isn't me telling anything interesting, but we hold to them. And I think that there's this belief that if it's a, it's a great consumer product until the emperor has no clothes, the emperor looks like must be wearing Gucci. So it's that idea where it's this flip. And then once it happens, and again, Under Armour was a great example of this. So like Under Armour, we had, again, we had the sell and it was early, but the idea was I'm looking at the receivables and I'm looking at the quality of sales drastically deteriorating. So revenues are continuing to grow. Everyone, this is this is this beautiful, this is back when everyone perceived we must protect the house and you want it to be wearing Under Armour. But all of a sudden you start seeing receivables grow, which is when you have a wholesale brand, it's the easiest way to do it. And you're thinking, well, that doesn't seem like the same way you were driving revenues for the last 20 years. And so it's like these first signs, like most people, balance sheets can be really helpful. <laughs> I think like that's, that's the lesson. Hmm. Yeah. I like that. I, I, um, yeah, I think that's interesting. I, the, the balance sheet, I, I think your, your Peloton explanation is 
a really good illustration of the interaction of three financial statements working together. Because if you're just looking at the cash flow statement, pretty easy to get really amped up. But if you're looking at the balance sheet, it's like, wait a second, why? Like, what is actually going on here? And, and by the way, that's exactly the point about people tell stories, numbers tell facts. Like, I keep, I go back to this and we'll, we'll find out how old your, uh, your, your listeners are right now. But like, I go back to that scene in The Matrix where Neo's talking to Cypher and you see these numbers going across. And he's like, I don't even see the numbers anymore. I just see whatever it is, the woman in the red dress, right? Like, the numbers don't lie. At least we hope they don't, right? And so yeah. if you take a cash flow and it doesn't align with what the income statement is telling you, well, then you have to make some kind of adjustment or you really have to go and look at what the adjustment that they made is. Yeah. Because ultimately it's our job to figure out what's the underlying, right? What's the recurring? And there's a certain like cash is real. And like, so totally, I love it. I love the way you framed it. Like the interplay, but there's a reason we have three financial statements. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It turn, turns out it works pretty nicely. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, uh, how do you think about the art of growth versus maintenance spend? You know, I mean, how much that it's something that, um, especially in some of these high growth companies really perplexes me and, and ends up in the too hard pile too often. So the fascinating thing happening with Peloton right now with Under Armour a few years ago with Victoria's Secret last year is. And I'm going to say something that, that might be just completely wrong, but in my mind, you're either a growth company or you're a value or, or you're a turnaround, right? I don't think hmm. you can be both. And if you try to be both, I think you generally, it, it gets dangerous. So maintenance versus growth, I, I, there's no opinion that I can make that's right, right? It depends on where you are. Hmm. So, and this goes back to this framework we had created a few years ago or, or more than a few years ago, pre-pandemic of the best way to, or an interesting way to judge a company is by determining are they growing or are they shrinking on a revenue basis? And then overlaying that onto this framework we created, are you, are you inverting, are you heavy fixed costs or are you heavy variable costs? Because at the end of the day, if a growth company believes in their growth, they should lay down fixed costs, scale the business and get incremental margin. Mm -hmm. And if a growth company internally in the boardroom says, everyone is seeing all these revenues grow, but by the way, we don't have this opportunity. It's about to, rugs about to be pulled out. We need to variableize because we need to protect on the way down. They're not going to say that in guidance, but the board's going to make that decision and tell you. So for me, businesses obviously need to maintain their business, but if they're in growth mode, they obviously need to grow as well. Yeah. So it's this internal conversation of just the kind of like to thine own self be true and then hopefully be true to us as well. But I don't think you can tell a company like certain companies should be like, listen, uh, certain big tech companies, like when I, when I did this now, so, so I used to cover Amazon. So at my prior shop. And I compared Amazon and Nike a lot. And the idea was you have an Amazon laying down all the fixed costs in the world for AWS that all the dying retailers are paying out on a variable expense structure to justify. So you watch who believes in their growth versus who believes that they're not. And I just think hmm. it's this really interesting dynamic of, again, like to thine own self be true. Why, um, why do you think nike has been so successful at maintaining a brand over such a long period of time i mean i think there's some obvious like oh well, jordan or whatever but like i think i i certainly don't and i think some people probably don't appreciate the nuances of what they've done to remain so relevant so you are asking listen there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of people that are a lot smarter than i am and there's a lot of questions that i have no idea on and you're asking probably the number one that I've been trying to dig and have not been able to come up with an answer with, 
And what I'll say is, well, the, the reason I'll go there, like, it's funny that you're asking this. You could have asked this for me earlier on the call because I said something and I forgot to caveat it. And I always try and caveat because it's important. Like at the back of all my big notes, I write where I think we can be wrong, right? I want to, I want to internalize it. I told you DTC brands peak at 3 billion in North America, wholesale brands peak at five to six. What I should have said was on this bar chart that I have, which I laminate and give out to anyone who wants. And it's this, it's like, it reminds me to stay focused. I do not have Nike on the chart. Why? Because if I did, you wouldn't see it. It's such an outlier. Like it would skew the entire scale. (laughs) So, and so I've asked them and I've spent a lot of time with them on this exact question that you're saying. Why is it that everyone, whether you're luxury or mass, has a certain level of consumer saturation, right? You either, if you're expensive, you sell fewer units at a higher price and vice versa. Why is it that Nike can do it? And so the beauty is, Bunch of years ago, we published a report called, uh, what do we call it? We called it Deconstructing an Athletic PL. And what we showed, the conclusion, was that athletic PLs are variable. So before COVID, before e-com, we just found out that if you're Nike, Adi, Puma, Under Armour, not Lulu, let's talk about that, but if you're an athletic business, you have a 10 to 12% of sales on marketing spend. You have, I don't remember the numbers, but it was an equivalent sales and marketing. You have like, they aligned. And it was mind blowing. Like, why would Nike and Under Armour, which at the time I remember being 8x apart in terms of revenues, why would they have the same OPEX structure as a percent of sales? That flies in the face Hmm. of everything you and I learn of as you build a business, you scale, you get margin. And so initially that made me very negative on Nike. And again, this was years and years ago. So my my gut reaction was that's really bad because you're never going to get margin. And by the way, up until now, they haven't. But then what I realized was, no, actually, that's really negative for Under Armour. And this was what prompted the Under Armour sell before I started digging mm. in, because if you live in a variable expense world, the best thing you can be is the largest. And so I like to believe, I try to be intellectually honest. Any single client that calls me and asks me about Nike, I say, listen, I have to spend intellectual honesty for a second and just tell you that their size and scale is their competitive advantage. No one can compete on R&D. No one can compete on advertising. And I'm mm. never going to be it because of that. I'm never going to be able to justify their peg ratio ever again, right? But you can either fight that or you can internalize that it's expensive for a reason. Yeah. And so this- Beachfront real estate costs money. Totally. <laughs> that's, totally right? that's Some people are like, why, why do certain stocks trade like they do? And it's like, look, man, it's uh, irreplaceable assets traded higher multiples than you may think they should. So I'm curious your view on this. I'm going to throw one around because like this interesting thing that I've been toying with, but haven't had time to actually stress test this is- Generally speaking, right, we're seeing this big growth stock sell-off, right? That not nothing new. And the idea, very simply, is inflation, higher interest rates, discount rates, all these things. It's more expensive to own the asset. To totally oversimplify. When I think about expensive stocks, I think historically they were growth stocks. And a growth stock means I disc I have a very, very long DCF, right? I've got a 30-year DCF. And so I so I need to discount it back. The interest rate matters. And so as the interest rate goes up, the cost of those future cash flows become more expensive. I think over the last five, 10 years, at least in in my world in retail, expensive stocks went from simply being growth to then also being a bucket of consistency. Like you started paying up for consistency rather than growth. Like off price, best model in the retail business doesn't have massive growth, but has dependability. Yes. You pay up for that. And so the interesting that I'm trying to toy with, and this was similar with Under Armour. The interesting thing that I was trying to toy with over the last few weeks is 
as higher interest rates take down higher multiples, because historically we associate higher multiples with higher growth, should they actually take down higher consistency stories? So if you're not actually paying for higher future cash flow, you're just paying for the notion that you can sleep easy at night, should inflation matter? And I don't know. I'm curious. I'm curious your view. Uh, I think. I think my answer to this is when you look at credit spreads and what they have done, and I'm going to talk over like a 10 year, 10 year problem or 10 year viewpoint. Okay. Not like, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just think that when spreads tighten and business has been in a predictable March throughout a bull market, it is easy to convince yourself as an equity investor that quality businesses should trade at tight spreads to junk bonds or even or maybe even within it right like i i could buy an argument from somebody looking at dollar general that says the equity risk premium of dollar general should trade inside the high yields you know like uh, not spread is maybe not that, but high yield of oil, right? Like, yep. I just don't want commodity risk. I don't care if I'm higher in the cap stack. Like, I don't care. Give me Dollar General's equity. I am curious how much of that is a byproduct of not having like a real prolonged recession for a while. Because I think that one of the things that has been interesting about margins throughout growth or a period of economic expansion, even though it was slower than maybe some would like, is that we haven't had a lot of slack being forced through the system. And people's models, I don't think, have been like really stressed. And I don't know how much of it is a secular sort of uptrend that's just right. going to continue in economics, and how much is uh, people maybe taking too much risk because they're starved for yield elsewhere. I, I don't have a good answer for that. It's interesting. Listen, it's an interesting perspective. This is well above my pay grade, but it's just this interesting thing that I've been trying to think through of like forgetting about like, it's funny, as you say that all I'm thinking of in recession, TJX does well, but like, that's not even the point, right? It's this idea that if we've agreed that if, if that's, if it's the flight to safety premium, as opposed to the discounting future value premium, inflation, recession, like all those things actually should theoretically work in their favor. Yeah. But again, I don't have time. Like this, this is like a, it, it's a philosophical study or it's like an academic study that I would love to do and I don't have time to do it, but it's just something I was just musing on because when I think about my group, this notion that I mentioned about Nike, like peg ratios are out my window. Sure. I could put a peg ratio on a Lulu or on a new hyper growth company, but the companies that beachfront property more likely than not in my world is because you can sleep really well in front of that beach. Yes. Not because you're going to be compounding on top of it. I think people think that you can both sleep well and you're going to compound. Uh, sorry, you were definitely, you know, sorry. You definitely, I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that perception is correct, but I think that's the perception. No, no, but you're right. I, I didn't say you're going to compound. I mean, not high growth. Like I would think off prices yes. is literally a compounder as opposed to you're going to exponentially jump ahead. Yes. Yeah, and that's I what, think they're so, stay wealthy stocks. Correct, correct. Until they break. And then it's right. like, oh crap, what do I own? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do, because I, I, I was actually, I was thinking about this for my own portfolio because I, I have too much duration 
in my portfolio, right? Like I'm, I'm way long equities relative to where I probably should be. And I've been trying to think about what is the right way to mitigate some of that risk. And my answer is I'm, I'm going to raise cash and run it like a barbell yeah. because I do have, I mean, I talk about, you know, curate my beloved curate that I had to exit, uh, recently, but generally it's high quality equities. And I think if I have something that punches like the quality long duration assets, I need something else that can play offense in that, in that scenario. And I don't have that right now. And that's a good way to, to, to get whacked. Yeah. Which by the way, I think is a lot of that, that goes back to my, the comments on the responses from the Under Armour upgrade. I think there's a bunch of companies that probably will, or will emerge as a winner, but the macro factors, the externalities are, listen, rising tides lift all boats and they also pull them back out to sea. So it's like figuring out when you can swim within them and when you can actually pick what's going to win, lose, as opposed to just what is the environment telling you? I think that's obviously the hard part. And, and hopefully that's where part of the value I can add is because I'm standing on the pier by the beach, right? I'm not in the boat. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's been an interesting time to learn and get trained because I, I have a, I have competing thoughts where one is if you're Nike right now and you want to go to compete, I don't think there's any limit to the amount of capital that Nike could go out and raise. I mean, there's some natural limit. But like if they came yeah. up with an idea and said, we want to go kill the competition, the amount of patient capital that's out right. there right now that would give them to them at like, you know, like no cost. So a multiple, I don't know where the multiple should be, but a higher multiple is justified when yeah. that's your competitive position. And I think that exists a lot of places. The, the place I can speak to reasonably well is media. and. I watch Viacom and Discovery where they trade and I see the pitch on why to buy them. And I'm like, I get why people own them. And I hope those people do well. I have, as, as someone who can pick any asset in, on the planet, I'm not going to cheap media. Like, it's just not going to happen. So it's really, it's an interesting thought. And I, I don't, listen, I, I'm not smart enough to opine on media, but when I think about retail, the world is creation, right? You're, you're creating IP, whether it's a song, a TV show, a sweater, or a poem, or a recipe. It doesn't matter. You, so there's a creator. There's a distributor, right, charged with curating and, and allocating something to its consumer. And then there's the end user, the consumer. And if I think about retail, retail and brands, you have both. You can be really create like you either have to spend on distribution. You have to be really good at distribution or you have to be really good at content. Like it's very hard to do both. And so figuring out, do you want to be someone that has to perpetually create new content or do you want to be someone who's going to figure out the best way to, to, to optimize distribution? And it just, it seems like media, media within retail, whatever it is, it's, it doesn't end, right? Like you always need new media. Like that's yeah. been, like going back to your growth versus maintenance CapEx, content spend is perpetual growth or I guess maintenance, whatever way the, the simile works better. The analogy works better, but it's this idea that content spend never ends. You stop producing content, you die. Whereas yeah. if you instead, if your dollars are, are maniacally focused on being the best distribution channel, as long as you like that, that's a different story. Hmm. And that's why this this interesting idea, like I'm not some huge department store lover, but I'm very anti the idea that they're dead. 
But yeah. I think like the idea is if as long as if you've created the channel to the consumer, let other people fight on creating the uh, the perpetually newness. Um, and it's just this interesting dynamic. It's like when I think about like everyone wants to be a media company, I'm kind of like, why? Yeah. I think the other interesting dynamic on media is it's like the more you create, the quicker the half-life of your past me- yeah. creation accelerates. You almost like create your own amortization by creating more. And then people demand more the more that's out there. It's like a, a, a treadmill that only speeds up. Well, so using, using your treadmill. So I remember one of the questions I asked Peloton early on was it was this period where they had to shut at the beginning of COVID, right? They had to shut down the instructors. You couldn't, couldn't bring stuff in. So they started at one point, there was a pause and then they started shipping. They, they gave them each product in their homes. Yeah. And my so man, Alex Toussaint was in his, uh, in yeah. his apartment. He had his Jordan jersey yeah. on. He was doing all that stuff, yelling at me in private. <laughs> so I asked, I asked them back then, I said, like, you just watched an ability and they had this phenomenal, right? That Alex class was like the best watch class, right? That was like the ESPN class or whatever it was. Yeah. And you had Robin, Robin from home was the first time they had some, I don't remember, like 25, whatever the number was. I said, if you're seeing you're able to do this with a drastically lower cost, drastically lower frequency, and you're getting better engagement, does the model not say that you don't need to perpetually like churn out even more? And the response was like, you're way off. And then listen, I may have been way off. They obviously made a different decision. It's to your point, pumping out new, new, new. But it was just this interesting dynamic where it's like you watch them have to scale back massively, and yet you watch customers respond with a huge uptick. Obviously, an anomaly. Obviously, there's a sense of let's we we get it. Let's kind of help support you. But at the end of the day, if you and I were up, we're we're operating as algorithms, we would say fewer is better. Fewer is elite. Sell less, charge more, make more money. It's just this constant idea. Yeah, I want I I wonder two things about Peloton. One, I wonder if they had come out with a rower instead of a tread if that would have been a, a better second product because there are so many fewer rowers, I think in a, in a house. And also like, I could really see rowing classes being a thing. Uh, you sort of see it at orange theory. They've yeah. got yeah. some, some rowers. And then uh, the other thing is if they had leaned hard into like in the middle of COVID, I think a lot of people like myself were looking for a good workout if they had leaned into like kettlebell classes or something like that and pivoted a little bit quicker into the non bike attached subscription and like not focus so much on hardware extensions, I wonder if this story could be different. So listen, we, we wrote a lot of deep dives over the last year and a half on Peloton. So they're like, when you asked what were the main learnings, So I gave you, I gave you one piece, but we've done a lot in here and I could not agree with you more. And we've published a nice chunk on the fact that we were, we, we were not excited about the tread launch, the initial tread launch. Yeah. And the reason was, and I don't remember that I'm going to butcher the numbers. There's like a generally accepted view that there's a reverse triangle of like 10, six to one or 10, six, three, some, some of tread to bike to rower, right? So the amount, the, the market and the conversation was always the tread market is so much bigger than the bike. That's yeah. great. And I totally agree with you. It was in reverse. It was like, no, the tread market is already in existence. Yeah. Like what Peloton, I think, did so well, going back to that point of create a product that you can teach someone how to learn their mistakes in their privacy so they can then go, listen, I would venture to guess anyone who does Peloton for two years then goes to a flywheel class, whatever, a soul cycle class, whatever's still around. It's liberating, right? Like all of a sudden you feel empowered. You're like, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's this idea of you took people that didn't cycle before. You took, this was a brand new product that looked nice, fit, it was small, fit, and gave you a very time efficient workout, right? It was a, it was a very nice mathematical algorithm. 
And what happened was people that were not cyclists found this to be a life-changing moment. Anyone that already had a treadmill didn't need to upgrade. And so it's like, if I think through where I go from there, I totally agree with you. If you were able to do the reverse for rowing, or if a rowing company got there first and said, by the way, here, we're going to give you a full body workout instead of just the bottom half, and it's going to be cardio and time efficient, I think that that had a lot of opportunity. I, listen, yeah. I, I think an interesting dynamic, which is, who knows, like this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but uh, so, so I'm just going to throw something out. But I wonder if rowing has been dealing, like they need a, a brand image change. And I think you have certain, like Hydro is working on that, like they're doing a nice job. But if you and I think about rowers, it's tall, white, lanky guys from Harvard, right? Like it's, it's always the villain in the movie, whether it's the Winkle Yeah, I, I was actually thinking, uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Cause, cause I had this moment, like I was thinking about this, like I started house of uh, house of cards late and I was watching this and I'm thinking, that's a beautiful machine. Like why didn't rowing catch on? I realized cause he's the bad guy. Yeah. It's so, possible. It's like, who knows? <laughs> what, um... I, think they're, I think they're moving to changes. If you look at like hydros, Focus, their story tells a very nice, body positive, diverse story that is helping to align the fact that this is, does not, you don't have to wear a sweater over your shoulder to be able to row. <laughs> what, uh, what's going on with Lululemon and Mirror? So Nike introduced the Fuel Band, which I'm going to revisionist history and just assume, I think it was before Fitbit. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, right? But Nike came in, they introduced a, a very early tracker. People loved it until they didn't. Nike shut it down. Under Armour bought something called Connected Fitness, introduced their own version of tech, had, had an app that was part of our bear thesis initially. Last year as part of COVID, they shut it down. When Lulu bought Mirror, the question was, are we watching this? Is this that 3 billion? So, so what you could follow up with my 3 billion comment is, well, what happens? How do companies stretch? What they do is they look beyond their TAM, right? Mm. They believe they do something really, really well, and then they figure they can extrapolate. And so Listen, all things considered with valuation, objectively, if Mirror is a success, they got it at a great price, right? It's every, every competitor is worth more than they are right now. But we just haven't seen, history has not shown athletic brands being good stewards of technological advancements. They're amazing yeah. stewards of athletic apparel advancements and marketing advancements, but we're just not seeing this lift and mirror. And I think that what we just saw with the guidance speaks year, right? I mean, like we're watching Lulu do a nice job in and of itself and then very much reset that base. I yeah. don't think that's the end, unfortunately. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you had mentioned we could come back to Lulu. I believe it was in the context of the PL. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what would you expand upon those thoughts? So the fascinating thing was, as we looked at this and we saw that everything was variable, Lulu was not. Lulu had margins that were better than the double the group. And so inevitably, as we stripped it down, and we have this in our initiation, and this is kind of some of the fun work we like doing, but if you delete the word Lulu, i.e. delete the sentimental value, and I listen, I'm a love the product too, right? Like delete the sentimental aspect of the brand and just look at the numbers. It looks a lot like Michael Kors retail at its peak and Tiffany hmm. at its peak. What does it look like? It looks like a highly productive box. Hmm. And I don't mean that in a good or a bad way. It's just what it is. So the margins, retail margins are constrained to their fixed costs. That's been kind of an underlying theme you and I have been talking about. A store is a great fixed cost. So if you're selling over $2,000 a foot and you're paying rent, your margins are going to be great. Yeah. Now, what that means, though, is your revenue is going to be capped. And so I think if you and I were to look at it and say, so Lulu in the U.S. is right around that $3 billion threshold. So it's going to be a very interesting one to watch. Hmm. Now, if you say to me, do they have permission 
to be an exception, I would tell you, sure, they do have a permission to be an exception. Like I, I could see Lulu going above, but they're also at the peak margin. Yeah. So if I think about Nike, Adi, Puma, UA, they all have wholesale. They have ASP. They have price points that are likely drastically less. Well, they are drastically less. They have a much higher marketing spend. They sell footwear, right? Like all of these things that allow the company to sell a lot more is, has thus far been in direct opposition to like the ethos of Lulu. Hmm. So if you want to be a very highly profitable margin story, you need to sell a lot of sales per square foot in a box, but that also means your revenues are going to be capped. So it's this interesting dynamic where it feels like they're at this very interesting crossroads where both revenues and margins appear to be at this potential peak. Like they might both be at a peak, but I think to make one of them grow, you'd have to sacrifice the other. Yeah. And that could, that, that seems like a tough bar with a brand like that because that brand has so much brand equity. And to me, the price point actually has something to do with that. Now, their, their clothing backs up the price point, right? But like to cut the price point, I don't know what that would do to the brand equity. That would be something that I would not, I would be nervous about playing that game to try to drive revenue growth. Yeah, I would um, definitely agree with that. It goes back to, listen, it's, it's this idea of are good, are prices, high prices, good or bad is not an answer. Like, that's what I'm trying to, like, there's so many easy ways to be prescriptive, but the question is simply, what are you? And so high price points, Lulu, Lulu's going to be a better business if it's heavily cash flow generative with incredibly high price points, but it does mean there's a cap on revs. So I think like that's this interesting dynamic. Now, you can come back to me again, going back to that 3 billion analysis. And say, well, what does it mean? Like, why? Well, those are just numbers, right? Here, here, I'm looking at specific leggings or specific polo shirts. What do your numbers matter? And so, what it means in real life terms is that at this saturation point, the edgiest people, the people that discovered the brand initially, go elsewhere because they start seeing the product show up, right? Yeah, it changes yeah. perception of what it stands for. And so, what we're seeing now, in a very interesting way, is you're seeing huge valuations. You're seeing Viore get a huge valuation in the secondary market. You're, look, you're seeing headlines for success at Rome. You're seeing other brands get, get acquired by larger families. Like you're watching the emergence of the, the, the next group of competitors in a way mm. that we haven't seen in a while, which helps speak to this idea of the edgiest people, the people that started your success are going elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough, uh, that's a tough problem to face. I, I don't have a, a deep enough appreciation for the history of this company, but I do have an appreciation for the man behind it. Ralph Lauren, did they, did they hit like this $3 billion mark in whatever those dollar, dollars were back in the day and then tried to go into line extensions that, that then tr they tried to kind of get out, they tried to exceed that and then through doing that, diluted their brand, right? And created this con consumer confusion. Is that the right story to tell myself in that? 100%. So with one tweak, so they're the wholesale equivalent. So if you're DTC only, so Ralph sells 40% of their business to wholesale approximately. So you have this business there in that five to six range. And so if you were to look, like we created this, this bar chart, this laminated bar chart, what it shows is it segments whether you're a DTC or a wholesale brand. And then mm -hmm. it shows where you peaked and where you've come back to. It's a really fun, color-coded, sell-side thing. So within that framework, you have a business that definitely did that meaningful expansion. 
And up until recently, and by recently, let's call it five years, so it's not yesterday, they were right there with Nike in that they were the only two brands, right? So Ralph and Nike were the only two brands historically that were able to sell a Halo product and a Diffusion product without diluting them. And what I mean by that is what Nike is currently the only company that's able to do en masse, and this is the, your question of why, is unanswerable, is they can sell $400 LeBron drops, yeah. minimum quantity that allows them with that Halo sell half a billion units of $50 shoes. Yeah. For so long, you could buy the same shirt, the same Ralph Lauren polo shirt at Bloomingdale's and Costco for drastically different price points, and it didn't dilute the brand. At some point, that caught up. Yeah. So that's this, and that's your point about Under Armour, right? At some point, having the logo be too pervasive diminishes the value of the existing base. Yeah. Nike is the only company that has been able to, to consistently avoid that, hmm. where despite the fact they are the largest company, the swoosh is everywhere, it's still perceived to be special. Ralph had it, they extended too far, and then they retraced. And Ralph had one of the best operators, one of the best CFOs in this business, actually drive that playbook of the shrink to grow. And so that's this idea of internalizing that you can either give up the dilutive revenue and try and protect your margin, or you can ignore it, fight through it, and inevitably, my belief is you lose both revenue and profit. Hmm. So they've taken a more proactive stance. He had a uh, he had a, a CEO that came in and left, and that guy was really uh, heralded as quite the CEO, right? But then I I forget. Uh, they clashed. Larson. Yeah, Stefan Larson. So it's a it's a it's a loaded question. <laughs> so I am of the view that retail legacy retail was a merchant prince driven business right there's ralph tommy mickey drexel like there were heroes and those heroes were the only ones with a license to opine on fashion when mm. ralph created an image it then became a real estate play so the way to win in retail in history to totally oversimplify it was you needed the person that was, uh, that was given, the very few people that had a megaphone and a platform to say, this is what you should look like, this is fashion. And then that was then rolled out. And a lot of times this was causation. That was then rolled out to their monopoly on real estate, whether it was mm -hmm. the apartment stores or whether it was the Gap's thousand store footprint, right? Real, retail was a real estate play. If you had the distribution and you had the, 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 the magical perceived well, not perceived, they, they had a, obviously skill, but you had that merchant, that was a winning success story. The problem or the evolution, and this probably started with Inditex and then morphed into Instagram, was that the license, it, it shifted from being a push model to a pull model. It shifted from being mm. a, I'm going to tell you what to wear and you're going to do it because I say so, which yep. is a mass model, right? It's everyone wears the same thing to it being... Anyone, any 12-year-old with an Instagram handle has the right to opine on fashion. Yeah. So totally All of a sudden, we got to build something you want. And, yeah. and more than that, somebody else wants to wear that you think is cool. And you have to listen. So now, all of a sudden, the people at the helm had to listen. I think when that happened, the individual leadership pivoted to a team focus. I think we've now watched individuals able to destroy companies with bad decisions, but a single individual doesn't make a company. Like, I think that there... I've... This notion of hero CEOs for me 
has hmm. devolved a little bit. And again, this is in my world, right? Like I think generally speaking, and there are obviously exceptions, right? Like we watch Bezos do what Bezos did, but I think that generally speaking, what tech has allowed for is the value of a team to become a lot louder than the value of a person individually. Hmm. And so that's this idea of when you have a person can hold a company back and I'm not going to opine whether Ralph or Stefan, like how that played out, but the idea of internalizing and actually listening to the consumer and listening to the reality and internalizing when too large is too large, that I think is the new world. And I think that yeah. was part of this conversation. I mean, I, that's actually when I got interested in Ralph Lauren and did some research was when Stefan came in because they laid out the plan to reduce the amount of brands. And I was like, okay, I, I can kind of get down with this, but I just didn't know them and Michael Coors like hit a trough at kind of similar points if i recall you correctly you this you're hitting you're, so like these are the ones right like it was ralph coach Coors, yeah. under armor like the only biggest the big brand that hasn't done it yet is calvin klein but it's like you're totally yeah 100 percent. these were it was this period where the big department store heavy brands that made i used to think about like so so i used to cover fossil fossil michael Coors, my math so so fossil reported at its peak i think 900 plus million dollars of michael Coors watches at wholesale that oh, means wow. That means that Michael Kors watches to consumers generated somewhere between a billion two to two billion dollars of, of revenue at retail. That's insane. Like that's bigger than yeah, most that's, companies. Like that's, that's just a lot watches. Of watches. So like what you th- and they sold through Macy's. So like you had this period where there was this beautiful triangle of Kors, Fossil, Macy's, like fueling each other and driving the comp. And you mm. hear about Center Core, and then all of a sudden they're like it morphed from being this beautiful triangle to being the Bermuda Triangle of death when you realize that all three of them were propping each other up and they just had stretched way too far. And so that was like years ago, but it was fascinating. Huh. And I assume that if we go back, we'll see that some of what what, uh, what began to erode a little bit of that competitive strategy was the advent of social media and a little bit more sharing and a little more of not, I'm going to tell you what to wear, or this is how you're going to procure something, but you have the choice to procure things how you want. So the irony was, it's probably it's both ways. Like social media first probably got people to start wearing more watches purchased per person per year. Like that was this absurd metric that we tried to calculate, where it's just literally, normally you think about a watch as being, listen, you own, you either, no one owns a Patek, but you take care of the next generation, which means you have one. Or you've got your functional watch, right? Like the yeah. notion of having a different watch for every different outfit wasn't really a thing until Coors introduced these very flashy two to $400 watches that people just started rotating yeah. out like they brought like tops. So it was this interesting idea of like social media huh. actually allowed for that. But then to your, then you're right. They're so flashy. They're so big that all of a sudden they start showing up and becoming ubiquitous. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what that's what I think, and I don't know this to be true, but that's what I think really started to take down Coach and Coors too, was when like they followed I, I don't know if it was like Fendi or whatever into the into the letter purses, and all of a sudden they were like everywhere. And it's like this what what my grandma grew up liking Coach for the quality of the leather, right? Like she used to to talk about there was Hermes on one level, and then like Coach was not at that level, clearly, but was in the conversation of high quality leather goods. Totally. Absolutely. And then they became like everywhere and then it just kind of got saturated. It felt like, I don't know if that's reality or not. No. So to give a, like, 
I like to say, and this is like, I hate when people say I like to say because they make it feel like it's actually something smart they're going to say. And this is no brilliant insight here. But every time I talk to a startup, I was just like, know the cost of today's dollar tomorrow, right? Like we talked about hmm. it a little bit before, but accessories and watches and expanding your, your, your lines are such an easy way to drive incremental revenue. But the question is, what does that cost you in the future? And so if you're a handbag company, Starting to sell watches, and by the way, doing it via license with another company is a no-brainer. It's the easiest thing in the world. There's no working capital. You're collecting 80% flow through on free dollars. So if it works, great. If it doesn't, not. Except no, right? Like you're literally, you, then you are giving someone else complete stewardship of your brand. Does, yeah. does a department store selling your watches? And by the way, you get paid by Fossil, not by Macy's. So you're actually not incentivized by them. Macy's doesn't care about your brand because they're a portfolio of brands. And again, I'm I'm throwing Macy's under the bus. That's not true, right? Hopefully Macy's does care. But a third-party retailer doesn't inherently care about your brand as much as they care about moving units. So it triggers this weird dynamic where you're allowing someone else to have full control over your brand because you believe you're getting 80% of incremental, but it just doesn't work like that. So Hmm. I think you're right. I think like when you see companies really pivot into broader categories rather than necessarily deeper categories, you need to ask yourself, do they make sense? And of course, certain line extensions are going to be amazing unlocks. So it's not universally, oh, if someone goes into another category, short them. But make sure that, the, that, that this aligns. Fast forward five years and is selling, if all of a sudden you sell a crazy amount of product in this new line, is that good or bad? Yeah. And if, if you think it's going to be bad, then it's going to be bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You got to ask or think about it. Just don't do it. I, you know, if it's all right with you, I have enjoyed this conversation, but I think that's like the tidbit that I want to end on. That's a... That's the second time that you've alluded to maybe sacrificing some some dollars today to extend the dollars tomorrow. And I think that that's a very insightful place to end this. So uh, if you're all right with that, I'm going to do that. Love it. I've really enjoyed it, man. Thank you so much for uh, for joining. And uh, I'll drop your contact information in the show notes. Do you want to tell anybody how to reach out to you or contact you or anything? LinkedIn is generally the easiest way, and then I can then we can bring it on to email. But um, this this has been great; it's been a lot of fun. Awesome! I'm glad you enjoyed, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Sounds great, bud. Good to see you.